Good morning, Your Highness. Good morning, Your Highness. Good morning, Your Highness. Happy birthday, Your Highness. Yes, it is my birthday. my 21st birthday. Do you think perhaps just once I might use the bathroom by myself? Most amusing, sir. Welcome to Hope. My name is Scott Raines, one of the pastors here. So glad you're joining us for worship as we begin Holy Week. Next weekend, it's going to be uh, Easter, and it's going to be a great big Jesus party, and you are all invited to come back and uh, worship with us as we celebrate uh, the resurrection to eternal life. Uh, but we've got some steps that we need to take before we get to Easter. Holy Week is helpful as we journey uh, to the empty tomb. So uh, Palm Sunday today, uh, Thursday is Maundy Thursday, 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock. Emily Beltram is going to be preaching. She's our uh, minister to children and students. We're going to be remembering uh, the Last Supper and Jesus teaching us what sacrificial love looks like. There's about 100 kids who are, uh, they took the First Communion class, so they'll be celebrating First Communion as part of those services as well. Uh, we're praising God for that. Emily also tells me this last Wednesday night at Power Life and Ignition, uh, that's our ministry to middle school and high school students, there were 30 students who were either baptized or renewed their baptisms. And yes, we should praise God for that. Exciting to see uh, what God is up to in the lives of our uh, young people around here. Thanks to all the volunteers who helped make that happen as well. On Friday, Good Friday, 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock, we'll be down the hall in the reservoir, and uh, that's where we'll have the Good Friday services. Pastor Ashley is going to uh, give us a brief uh, meditation on what the death of Jesus means and what that's all about. The Adult Praise Choir has been uh, working hard for several months. They're going to be leading us through the final hours of Jesus' life, a Good Friday cantata. So uh, I know a lot of us, we like to just jump to the party, jump to the good stuff. It's important for us, if, if we're able to, uh, to stop and sit with the, the sadness and the death a little bit too, so that we can experience the fullness of what a resurrection means. Six services uh, next weekend, two on Saturday, four Sunday morning. And let me just say a little bit about Easter. Two years ago, uh, we were a month into the pandemic, and so all of our worship services were online. 
Uh, last year, we were still socially uh, distancing so we could have 200 people in the building at a time. So for many of you, this will be the first time in three years that you gather together in your church building with your church family uh, to celebrate Easter. I'm, I'm excited about what God is up to for that. I hope you're excited about that. I hope you're thinking of who to invite uh, to come and, and be a part of services this week as well. Um, if you love a crowd, if you love being in a room that's just jam-packed full of people, if you love showing up at, at uh, service and being told the worship center is full, let us show you the way to the reservoir where we'll, we'll be live streaming the service from the worship center, then you should absolutely come at 9.30 next weekend. Uh, because every year, everybody say every year. Every year, the 9.30 service is the highest attended service. And so, uh, hello to everyone worshiping in the reservoir right now. We ran out of room here on Palm Sunday. Praise God for that. And we've got people in, in overflow worshiping with us. Um, if that's what you want, come next week at 9.30. If you'd like a little more room, consider coming to one of the other five services. Uh, and uh, you might not run into that issue if you consider that an issue. Every year people show up and they're surprised uh, at 9.35 that there's no room in the worship center and they're disappointed. So we just don't want people to be disappointed when they come. So that's the run uh, for Holy Week services. God is on the move and that gets us to Palm Sunday. Uh, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He's being hailed as the Messianic King and, and one of the things that we notice about Palm Sunday, Jesus shows us a king who is unlike any other kind of king. I was a little surprised uh, reading through the Palm Sunday story, a very familiar story. I think this is the 20th Palm Sunday sermon uh, that I've preached. And how do you make that familiar story new and fresh and alive? And I was a little surprised when the movie that kept popping into my head was this movie from uh, 1988, Eddie Murphy coming to America. But he's a prince, it's his 21st birthday. And what I wanted you to notice about that scene there's not a moment in his day where he does not have people serving him. Every moment of his day, people are serving him. And this is kind of the stereotypical uh, conventional wisdom that we have around royalty. Royalty gets to be served by others. Contrast that to Jesus, where pretty much every moment of Jesus' life, he's figuring out not how to be served, but how to serve others. Pastor Ashley last week in her sermon uh, was talking about uh, the kingdom of God and how biblical scholars say the central story, the central teaching of Jesus is this idea of the kingdom of God. And if that's the primary thing that Jesus did, announced the good news of the kingdom, demonstrated the good news of the kingdom, then it should not be surprising that every once in a while his disciples would have conversations like, you know, after Jesus has this coronation and he becomes the king and he's sitting on his throne, where will we be sitting? Who gets to sit in the places of honor on Jesus' right and Jesus' left? And so they're having this conversation, Matthew chapter 20, and Jesus turns it into a teaching moment. I'll pick it up in verse 25. He says to his disciples, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. In other places in the gospels, uh, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Among you, it will be different. It's a different kind of kingdom because it has a different kind of king. 
And Jesus gives us kind of the definition, the kind of king that he is in verse 28. We'll put it on the screen and let's read this out loud together. Read this with me. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's difficult for us to fully understand how confusing this was for the disciples because we live on this side of the cross. But before the cross, before the resurrection, before the empty tomb, when Jesus would talk like this, it confused people, especially the people closest to him. What are you talking about, Jesus? You're not gonna, the Messiah is not going to die. The, the, one, the king who's going to uh, bring Israel back to its greatness, you're not going to die. And yet, the disciples had been following Jesus for three years at this point. They'd watched moment by moment in his life. He modeled this. He modeled a life of sacrificial love and service of others. At this point, he has predicted his death at least three times. And still, this is confusing to the disciples. They don't understand what to make of what Jesus is saying here. You turn the page from Matthew chapter 20 to Matthew chapter 21, and it's Palm Sunday. That conversation around what kind of king Jesus is going to be, what kind of kingdom he's building, it's part of the build-up to Palm Sunday. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people who are in, gathering in Jerusalem, they've come from all over to celebrate the Passover, just like Jesus and his disciples are there to celebrate the Passover. And when they see Jesus, they start shouting Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, about the Messianic king, in the direction of Jesus. So Isaiah chapter 62, look, your king is coming to you, they're shouting at Jesus. As he makes his way further into the uh, city of Jerusalem, they're lining the streets with their garments and with uh, palm branches, and they're waving them, and they're shouting the words of Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now I want us to do just a little bit of original language work here. Um, when you look at the original language, there's a theme that starts to show up throughout the Palm Sunday story that's easy for us to miss if we're just reading through the English translation. So I'll lead, the, I'll lead you through this really quickly. Um, Isaiah 62 does not actually say in the original Hebrew, your king is coming to you. It says your yesha is coming to you. And yesha is the Hebrew word for salvation. Most Hebrew words are three-letter root words. So this one is Yod, Shin, Ayin. Remember, you read from right to left when you're reading Hebrew. Yod, Shin, uh, Ayin. means Yesha. And if you see a word that has more than three letters, probably it means they've done something to it. They've made it a plural, or uh, they've attached a pronoun to it, or an article to it. But most words, three-letter words, Yesha, is going to show up a lot of different places throughout this Palm Sunday story. It's important for us to notice. If you were paying attention, uh, you may have noticed when I said Psalm 118, they're shouting out Hosanna, and you're like, wait, it doesn't say Hosanna up there. So let's put the original Hebrew of Psalm uh, 118, and this should clear things up, right? <laughs> so Hosanna is the Greek version of two Hebrew words. And again, you don't need to know Hebrew at all to understand how this works. So Hosha is the first word, Na is the second word, Hosha Na becomes Hosanna in Greek. But Hosha, if you look closely, you see the root word Yesha, Yod Shinayan. It's a little different because they've added some stuff to it, but you see the Yod has become a Vav, Yod, Shin, and Ayan. Hosha means save us, save us. Na means now, Hoshana, save us now. Yesha, Hoshana, 
the screen's getting a little messy. We'll wipe it clean. And one more Hebrew word that I want us to look at from uh, the Palm Sunday story, and it's verses 10 and 11 of Matthew 21. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as Jesus entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. It's Jesus. Uh, My wife's name is Wendy. And so when we got married, she became uh, Wendy Rains. She said I should have been a meteorologist. Uh, Wendy Rains. Some of you are old enough to remember the old song by the association. Who's walking down the streets of the city, smiling at everybody. Anyway, uh, everyone knows it's Wendy is how that goes. Who's riding through the streets of Jerusalem? Who's the one they're having a parade for? Who's the one they're shouting Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah at? Who's the one they're waving the palm branches at and shouting Hosanna? Everyone knows it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And Jesus is the English version of a Hebrew name, Yeshua. Yeshua means the Lord saves. The root word of Yeshua is Yesha, Yod, Shin, Ayin. You see it right there too. You remember uh, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, as he's telling the Christmas story, part of what Matthew includes is the angel's visit to Joseph. And the angel tells Joseph, uh, Mary is pregnant. You're not the dad. It's okay. God's got a plan here. Uh, But just to be clear, Joseph, when the baby is born, you do not get to name the baby Joseph Jr., Remember what the angel said? You will name him Jesus. You will name him Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua, Yesha, uh, Hosanna, save us now, salvation, the Lord saves. Do you see the theme of salvation that's all, it's at the heart of the story of Palm Sunday? Jesus does not ride into Jerusalem for a coronation. Or maybe a more accurate way to put it, Jesus rides into Jerusalem for a very different kind of coronation than what you and I might imagine. He rides in for a crucifixion. Jesus doesn't ride in in order to be served by everyone around him. He rides in to die, to serve us, to give his life as a ransom for many. It's all about salvation. And the question I have for you today is, What kind of salvation do you need Jesus to bring to you this Palm Sunday, this Holy Week, this Easter? What what are the things that are going on in your life that feel out of control? What are the things in your life, in your relationships, in your job that you want to change and everything that you've been trying to bring about that change is not working? What salvation do you need Jesus to bring to you? And as you think about how you might answer that, I want to show you another video clip. This one is not from Coming to America. I was talking to Eli, who's one of my colleagues here, and said, I sort of feel weird showing a clip from Coming, it is not a family movie, uh, showing a clip from Coming to America in my Palm Sunday sermon. And Eli, just like he said, oh, no, it makes complete sense. Eddie Murphy, the star of Coming to America, played a donkey in Shrek. Donkey, <laughs> Palm Sunday. It's a God thing, right? It's no accident. So this is a clip from Shrek where Donkey and Shrek are talking about salvation. Take a look. Hey, Shrek, 
What we gonna do when we get our swamp anyway? Uh, our swamp? You know, when we threw rescuing the princess and all that stuff. We? Donkey, there's no we. There's no our. Mm -hmm. There's just me and my swamp. And the first thing I'm gonna do is build a ten-foot wall around my land. You cut me deep, Shrek. You cut me real deep just now. Hey, you know what I think? I think this whole wall thing is just a way to keep somebody out. No. Do you think? Are you hiding something? Never mind, donkey. Oh, this is another one of those onion things, isn't it? No, this is one of those drop it and leave it alone things. Well, why don't you want to talk about it? Why do you want to talk about it? <laughs> why are you blocking? I'm not blocking. Oh, yes, you are. Donkey, I'm warning you. Who are you trying to keep out? Just tell me that, Shrek. Who? Everyone, okay? Oh, now we're getting somewhere. Oh, for the love of Pete. Hey, what's your problem, Shrek? What you got against the whole world anyway? Huh? Look, I'm not the one with the problem, okay? It's the world that seems to have a problem with me. People take one look at me and go, Ah, help, run! A big, stupid, ugly ogre. They judge me before they even know me. That's why I'm better off alone. You know what? When we met, I didn't think you was just a big, stupid, ugly ogre. Yeah, I know. People take one look at me and they think they know who I am. They judge me before they even know me. I don't think Shrek's the only one who kind of lives their life with that track playing somewhere in the back of their mind. Uh, there's a great author, Christian thinker, uh, helps us figure out what does it look like to actually follow after Jesus. His name is uh, Henry Nouwen. I want to read a little bit of what Nouwen writes and see if this resonates in your spirit in any way. You are not what you do, although you do a lot. You are not what you have collected in terms of friendships and connections, although you might have many. You are not the popularity that you have received. You are not the success of your work. You are not what other people say about you, whether they speak well or whether they speak poorly about you. All these things that keep you quite busy, quite occupied, and often quite preoccupied are not telling the truth about who you are. When you take what Nouwen writes there, you, you could say, basically he's saying, there are lies that we believe that keep us trapped, lies that we believe that keep us from experiencing the fullness of life that God has for us. And the three lies we find ourselves trapped in are, I am what I have, I am what I do, I am what other people think or say about me. These are lies, this is not the truth. God's the only one who can tell you who you are. And when we get confused about our God-given identity, or when we start to doubt, we wonder if we can really trust that we are who God says we are, this is what leads to behaviors that we might classify as sinful behaviors. Sinful behaviors. You'll call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He'll help you live out of who you really are. He will save you. He will set you free from the lies that trap you and hold you in bondage. 
So the rest of the time together today, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, and we're going to take a look at an encounter Jesus has with one individual, just one individual. And as we make our way through this story, we'll see the ways this person in this story has bought into these lies and how it drives him away from Jesus. Mark chapter 10, the story is often referred to as the story of the rich young ruler. I'll start reading in verse 17. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, and we'll stop there just as a a, a quick note, what's Jesus going to Jerusalem for? To celebrate the Passover. This is on the way to Palm Sunday, this encounter happens. A man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember, one of the lies that traps us is the lie, I am what I do. Here's a guy coming to Jesus asking, what must I do? Jesus responds in verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus asked, only God is truly good. I'm always interested, what's Jesus' tone of voice? Uh, What's his body language when he's talking with someone? And the scripture writers hardly ever tell us exactly, but there are some clues that they give us in the larger context of Mark chapter 10 so that we can, like, is Jesus angry that this man calls him good? Don't call me good, only God's good. Is that Jesus' tone of voice, or is there something else going on here? At the beginning of Mark chapter 10, Jesus has an encounter with a a bunch of Pharisees who do not believe he is the Son of God, they do not believe he's the Messiah, and so they're trying to do something to get Jesus to do or say something that will prove to everyone Jesus is not who he claims to be. But Jesus masterfully sidesteps their traps, and in the process, everyone who's watching this encounter comes away even more convinced that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. There's another clue in verse 21. What's Jesus' tone of voice with the rich young ruler? We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, For now, suffice it to say, Jesus is not angry. His tone of voice is more that of a teacher in, in this point. Why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. And so Jesus is helping connect dots. He's using the transitive property, right? If God is good and you're calling me good, Are you calling me God? Jesus keeps going in verse 19. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Now, if I asked you to just rattle off the Ten Commandments right now, Uh, we we might not be able to do it. If I gave you five minutes, you could probably come up with it. You can't look in the Bible or on your Bible app or anything. You'd get seven or eight really quick. You might have to think for a while to finish it out. But in Jesus' day, anytime you start rattling off the Ten Commandments, it was ingrained in them. It was drilled into them from an early age. You start it, they, they could finish it for Jesus. So the people listening to Jesus have this encounter with this man, they... They understand Jesus is doing something interesting and most likely purposeful in here because they know the commandments. Yes, must not murder, must not commit adultery, steal, testify falsely, honor your father and mother. That's all part of the Ten Commandments. But this one, you must not cheat anyone. It's not part of the Ten Commandments. Why would Jesus ask a rich young ruler if he knows the commandment, you must not cheat anyone? Is it possible Jesus knows something about this man that this man might not know about himself? 
that Jesus knows this man has some blind spots, that there are some things in his life that he refuses to see? Is it possible Jesus knows how this man acquired his riches? And it didn't all come honestly. Maybe he's a guy who sells a, a product, but he has priced that product at a, like he's at the airport or a movie theater, and it costs this much. It's just, are you kidding me? It costs that much. Uh, there, there's the Ten Commandments, but there's ultimately over 600 laws and commandments in the old, whole Old Testament. And one of the commandments is against something called usury. If somebody borrows from you, usury is when you uh, charge a ridiculous interest rate, ridiculously high interest rate around that. And the Bible's really clear, you should not do that. Now, this story does not clearly tell us how this man became wealthy, but as you read through it, Jesus is digging into something. There's an organization in our country called the Economic Policy Institute, and they pay attention to economic trends uh, in our country. One of the things they've been paying attention to is salaries, wages, uh, compensation, that sort of thing, and particularly comparing how much workers are earning compared to how much CEOs are earning. Here's part of what they've discovered. In the year 1965, the CEO to worker compensation ratio was 15 to 1. Every dollar a worker earned, the average CEO earned $15. And that ratio seems somewhere in the realm of reasonable, doesn't it? By 1989, it had tripled 45 to 1. Look at what happens in the next 11 years. By the time you get to the year 2000, it's 386 to 1. Now, I thought, what, what does that look like in, like, real dollars? So I went to the U.S. Census Bureau website for the city of Ankeny. I know not everyone's from Ankeny, but uh, this is for Ankeny, and it's going to be pretty close wherever it is that, that you live. And they have some information about uh, income levels in, in our city. Uh, median household income, this is the 2020 census, uh, $89,000. But that's household income. So I was like, uh, the, another one they had was um, per capita income per capita income for the city of Ankeny, 41000 Now that's low, right? Because that includes kids, and kids don't make, at least not in my house, kids don't make $41,000 a year. So $41,000 a year, take it times 386, $15,826,000. Workers are making $41,000, $15,800,000 for CEOs. That was in the year 2000. Apparently people started talking about it and writing about it because it's been cut in half over the last two decades almost to 200, it's only 203 to one now. I don't know what the ratio should be. I don't know what the right ratio is. But I do know that I'm a follower of Jesus, the kind of king who says, among you, it will be different. And I do know there is a line and when the line gets crossed, some people become very, very wealthy by cheating others. This is part of what is going on in this story in Mark chapter 10 as Jesus is having this encounter with the rich young ruler. You know the commandments, Jesus says. And then he sticks in a commandment that is actually out of place with the rest of the list. Do not cheat others. The man replies to Jesus in verse 20, Teacher, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. What do you think? Is he telling the truth there? Is he perfect? 
I've obeyed all the commandments since I was young? Wow. Tip of the cap. Or is it possible this man is publicly declaring his lack of self-awareness? His blind spots are glaring at this point. And then we get to verse 21. I, I mentioned we'd come to verse 21. It gives us a clue about the tone of this entire encounter. Uh, for my money, verse 21, it's in the top 10, one of the greatest verses in the Bible. We'll put it up on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. Read it with me. Even those of you in the reservoir, read this out loud with me. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Jesus sees. Jesus knows. This man is not perfect. This man is a lawbreaker. More often than not, this man does not do the right thing. And church, Jesus sees. Jesus knows. You are not perfect. You are a lawbreaker. More often than not, you do not do the right thing. Jesus knows your hidden sin. The thing that keeps tripping you up, that you're like, thank goodness I'm keeping this in the dark. Thank goodness nobody knows. If somebody found out about this, I would be humiliated and devastated. Jesus sees. Jesus knows your secret shame. And Jesus looks you in the eye, and Jesus feels genuine love for you. Because you're not defined by what you do. You're not defined by what you have. You're not defined by what other people think or say about you. You are defined by the genuine love your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has for you. Jesus loves you, and Jesus loves you enough to save you, to point out the things, the lies that you believe that are keeping you trapped, that are keeping you from experiencing the fullness of life that God desires for you. Jesus loves you enough to set you free, to point you to a better way, a deeper truth, a more abundant life. And that's what Jesus is trying to do in, in this man's life. He keeps talking to the man in verse uh, 21. There's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, hopefully, as we've been making our way through the story, hopefully it's pretty clear to you, this, this is a very specific individualized uh, encounter that Jesus is having. This is not Jesus making a grand declaration, a broad sweeping declaration for all people for all time. If you're going to follow after Jesus, you've got to sell all your possessions first. No, this is Jesus trying to open the eyes of a man who is blind, and in the moment it doesn't seem to be working. Because after Jesus tells him, sell everything, give the money to the poor, then come follow me, here's how the man responds, verse 22. At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Please understand, this man's many possessions were not his problem. His problem was he believed his many possessions defined him. He's bought the lie. I am what I have, I am what I do. I am what other people think or say about me. If I sell my possessions, if I give all my money to the poor, then I'm no longer the rich young ruler. And if I'm not the rich young ruler, then who am I? And I hope you see the way 
that buying into these lies have kept him trapped and they actually lead him away from Jesus. He walks away from Jesus. But the story continues. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I don't know if you're like me, but when I find myself reading through a story like this and a teaching like this, I find myself kind of patting myself on the back. Thank goodness I'm not rich. Those poor rich people, it's, it's so much easier for me to follow Jesus than those rich people. Isn't it interesting? We start talking about, my, we always compare ourselves to people who have more than us. We hardly ever compare ourselves to people who have less than us. According to the World Bank, 80% of the population of this planet, 80% of the people on earth live on less than $10 a day, which is less than $4,000 a year, which means the per capita income in Ankeny is 10 times more than 80% of the people on this earth. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking about me. He's talking about you. He's talking about us. Why is it hard for us to enter the kingdom of God? We've bought the lies too. I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what other people think or say about me. If you don't believe that these lies impact you, I challenge you to pay attention to them this week. When you're getting your yard ready this spring, is it really because you just like having a nice yard or is it because you like when your neighbor comes over and tells you you have a nice yard? When you're reading what people are posting on social media or thinking about what you're going to post on social media, I am what I have, I am what I do, I am what other people think or say, does that ever influence your behavior? I think we are struggling to break free from these traps in this community. I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what other people think and say about me. This was confusing to the disciples. Pay attention to uh, how they respond to this word from Jesus. This amazes them. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus gives them a word picture. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. First they're amazed, then they're astounded at this idea that it's difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. Why are they amazed and astounded by this? Because the prevailing theological wisdom of their day. Everyone knew if you were wealthy, it was a sign that God was blessing you. If you were wealthy, it's a sign you're right with God. It's your wealth that saves you is what people believed. Now, they didn't really believe that, did they, Scott? Look at the rest, rest of verse 26. They're astounded and they ask Jesus, then who in the world can be saved? It's a salvation issue for them. In Jesus' day... And going back through most of the Old Testament, and it still impacts us today in all kinds of ways, people understood. If you were poor, everyone knew that's a sign that you're not right with God, that maybe even God is cursing you. If you're sick, you had an illness or a disease, everyone knew you're not right with God. If you're the wrong skin color or the wrong ethnicity, you speak the wrong language, you're from the wrong country, everybody knew you don't belong in the kingdom of God, there's not a place for you there. If you're an incarcerated individual, everyone knew you've blown your chance, there's no second chances for you. There, it's impossible for you to be made right with God, it's impossible for you to be saved, but here comes Jesus, Yeshua, the Lord's salvation. He has a very different understanding of salvation and blessing and curses. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the year of the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's blessing has come. Who in the world can be saved? The disciples ask, and Jesus says, everybody. Everybody can be saved because everything is possible with God. I do not know what salvation you are in need of today. I don't know what salvation you need God to work out in your life. But I hope the Spirit of God is stirring some hope in you that it's possible. It's possible. Salvation is possible for you. Because here comes our King. Here comes our salvation. Hosanna. Save us now. Maybe that's why the people are lying in the streets with the palm branches and waving the palm branches. Because it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Who can take the broken and make them whole again? It's Jesus. Who can take the blind and help them see again? The deaf and help them hear again? It's Jesus. Who can take people who are lonely and disconnected and isolated and welcome them into loving community? It's Jesus. Who can take people who are weeping, mourning, devastated at at the loss of someone they love who has died and fill them with joy? It's Jesus. Who can bring the dead to life again? It's Jesus. Who, Who can take people who believe they have been cursed by God and give them an experience of God's blessing? It's Jesus.